Children, um, have you ever tried to run a really long distance? I say really long, you know. Um, maybe the length of your street or some, some distance that seemed really long to you. And you wanted to do it as fast as you could. And so you started running, maybe you were running with a friend or a couple of friends, and you said, ready, set, go. And you started running, and you ran at full blast, right? And you're chugging along, and all's going well, and you're really going fast, and maybe so are your friends. But then, because it's such a long distance, all of a sudden, you start getting tired, and sore, and out of breath. And so you start slowing down and keep slowing down and maybe you didn't even get to the final destination. You just kind of run out of gas and stop running. You ever done that? I remember doing that uh, when I was in elementary school with my, my friends during the gym class. And we would, gym instructor would tell us to, to run and we had a really big uh, grassy field out behind our school and we would run around that grassy field and he would tell us to sprint it. And I did that. I remember, I remember that. And I would, sometimes I would just, I don't know if I ever flopped over and fell on the ground, but I think I might have once or twice. Because I just was, I was just, I was done. But I started out really well, but I didn't end well. Maybe you had an experience with something else besides running. Maybe, maybe you, uh, some project you were working on and you started out really carefully doing whatever it was you were doing. Maybe it was a drawing or, Maybe you were building something, and, and after a while you kind of got tired of the project or disinterested, and you started being careless and making mistakes, and finally you were just kind of like, ah, I'm done with this. Probably all of us have done something like that. Well, Joash did something like that. King Joash, who this text is about. And I'm talking about his, his spiritual life, his, his walk with God, if we can put it that way. We looked at him last week. And, um, well, before I get into that, let me just remind you that we're looking at his reign, Joash's reign. He's the king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom is, is called Israel. This is after, of course, the split of the, of the original Israel into these two separate nations, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Joash is this, in the southern king. That's where the Davidic line is. And he ruled over that kingdom from the years 835 B.C. This is close. Roughly 835 B.C., to 796 B.C., so about 40 years, 39 or 40 years he was on the throne, into his 40th year, I believe. And his reign over Judah clearly divides into two distinct and sharply contrasting periods. Now, two weeks ago, I preached on the first portion of Joash's reign, um, and uh, which was characterized by covenantal faithfulness, at least outward covenantal faithfulness on Joash's part, and consequent, it was also characterized by blessings that were uh, as a consequence of his covenantal faithfulness that were bestowed by the Lord upon his kingdom, upon Judah, and, and upon him personally. That was the first portion of his reign. Well, today we're going to look at the latter portion of Joash's reign, a period that very sadly rather than being characterized by covenantal faithfulness, was characterized by blatant covenantal infidelity on Joash's part. 
and therefore was also characterized by the meeting out of the consequent of consequent covenant curses by his covenant lord so this is a depressing sermon i'm just giving you a heads up but we need to hear depressing sometimes we need to be warned lest we fall into the same trap ourselves so here goes three points first this text in this text king joash's apostasy is described. Secondly, in this text, Joash's King Joash's apostasy is demonstrated. And then finally, in this text, King Joash's apostasy is cursed. First, it's described, by the way, by apostasy. This is something that only somebody who's been in the covenant community, either Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament, can be guilty of. You can only be an apostate if you've been in the church. But apostasy is essentially the wholesale abandonment of the covenant Lord you once professed to trust and love and serve. That's what apostasy is. It's turning away from the one you said, I'm trusting you, I I wish to serve you, and it's doing an about-face, and a permanent about-face. Or, well, depending on what Lord, Lord can intervene, but generally speaking, it's permanent. So, that's what apostasying, and uh, King Joash, turns out, becomes apostate. And his apostasy, uh, we first learn, uh, in its description of it, we first learn of a the turning point when it began. That turning point is when he, Joash, went from being a covenant-keeping king of Judah to becoming a covenant-breaking king of Judah. And that turning point was following the death of his mentor, Jehoiada, the chief or high priest, who uh, was with him from his youth. We read of this um, turning point in the first two verses of our text today. Now when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. He was 130 years old at his death, and they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done well, he was only a priest, but he was buried among the kings because he had done well in Israel and to God and his throne. But then we read in verse 17, but after the death of Jehoiada, then things go downhill from there, as we will see in a few moments. But so, the chronicler here, especially in verse 17, but after the death of Jehoiada, that phrase and what comes after it, the chronicler and the Holy Spirit who speaks through him always, it's always the Holy Spirit, the God who speaks, as well as the human author, clearly implies that the explanation for Joash's decision to con- not to continue trusting in and striving to obey the Lord The explanation for that, first and foremost, is the absence of Jehoiada's godly influence in his life. His mentor, who pointed him in the right direction and said, you need to serve God, and here's how he left the scene. And Jehoiada was on his own, in some sense, in terms of the absence of uh, 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 Jehoiada and his influence. And the text makes it clear that that was the turning point. That's when things went to pieces, spiritually, for 
Joash. And the nature of his apostasy, his covenant breaking, which is another word for apostasy, uh, stubborn and obstinate covenant breaking, is set forth by what the Lord himself says through his mouthpiece, who is Jehoiada's son, Zechariah. And we read what happened, the description of what happens, not just to Joash, but also his officials and indeed the nation uh, as a whole, but particularly to Joash. We read in verse um, 20, uh, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people uh, and said to them, and, and of course Joash is right there as well, undoubtedly listening, Thus God has said. And by the way, this is essentially a uh, roughly a quote from Numbers chapter 14, verse 41, where Moses is, is, um, is talking to the people of Israel who are being obstinately disobedient to God. And this is essentially a quote uh, by the Lord of his servant Moses back then. And he says, God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, He has forsaken you. This is a description of apostasy, folks. Transgressing the commandments of the Lord, which is to say the commandments of the covenant, which the Lord has given and wherein the commandments are found, and as a result, forsaking the Lord. That is what apostasy is. It's how it's described here, and it's a very accurate um, uh, summation of what apostasy looks like and should be described as. Joash and his subjects and his officials we are told, had transgressed the commandments of the Lord found in the covenant. Now, if you think of a command of God in spatial terms as having discernible boundaries and as being contained, the commandment being contained within those boundaries, transgressing one of God's commands involves stepping across that boundary into forbidden territory beyond the commandment into disobedience to the commandment. That's the language of going across a a dividing line um, and uh, stepping into uh, into territory that is evil. And uh, he says, you have transgressed the covenant. You and your officials and indeed your nation. To transgress the covenant is to show contempt for the limitations that the Lord has placed upon us in the gracious covenant he has made with us. Again, you can't be an apostate unless you're in covenant, in the covenant community, and therefore at least externally in covenant with the Lord. And to to commit apostasy, to, to transgress the commandments consistently, is to show contempt for God's uh, limitations, that he says, here is where you may live, within these boundaries.
And this is what um, Joash had done. God indicates here through Zechariah, his mouthpiece, that by having ongoingly and deliberately repudiated God's will for them, in particular, uh, God's will for them, that they trust Him, that they love Him, that they obey His commands, having ongoingly and repudiated, uh, um, deliberately repudiated that will for them, they, the nation, had in effect forsaken, abandoned God as their master and king, Yahweh. Someone who once had a credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus was recently put out of this church. Most of you know who I'm talking about. And he was put out of our communion for his stubborn refusal to trust, love, and strive to obey the Lord. As best the elders, we elders can tell, he is an apostate. It's a terrifying, should be terrifying, because it is a spiritual place to be. We need to pray for this individual that he is, while he is apostatizing, that he is not a reprobate. Reprobate is somebody whom God has predestined to damnation. We need to pray that that's not him and that the Lord would reclaim him. But this is serious stuff, folks. This happens. It happened to Joash. It happens today. And don't think you don't have the ability in yourself to do just this. You do, and I do. Left to our own devices, every last one of us will apostatize. Don't underestimate the the potential for evil that is within your heart. Well, the reason given for Joash's apostasy is uh, obstinate covenant breaking. In addition to the absence of Jehoiada's godly influence is found in verse 17. We read there, But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. It was the unholy influence of those whom Joash had surrounded himself with at this point in his life that led to his undoing. Now, it was first and foremost the absence of of the good uh, teacher and mentor in his life. But the absence produced his listening to these wicked counselors of his. And folks, it is a truism, and and it's biblical to boot, that evil company corrupts good morals. Now, there's a delicate balancing line here. We are required not to hide behind monastic walls and and per- separate ourselves from the unbelieving world physically and go, I don't want to have anything to do with unbelievers. That's sinful to do that. Uh, we are required to be in the world, 
but we are simultaneously required to not be of the world. And it's difficult, is it not? Colleagues at work, neighbors, family members who don't know Christ, um, who tug at us and try to get us to buy into their views on marriage, uh, on uh, what's right and what's wrong, uh, what we can, quote-unquote, get away with because God's, uh, you know, uh, a nice guy. Forgive me, that's language that ungodly people use. But it's, part of us is drawn to that stuff. And, and we have to be on guard. We have to guard our hearts. Lest, lest while we're in the world, we become one of the world. And we need God's grace to do that properly. We need to ask for discernment. You need to ask for discernment. I need to ask for discernment. And uh, to know when I need to back away from some person, some situation, some conversation, um, some influence. And God requires us to do that. To exercise good judgment about how and where and when we interact with the unbelieving world that we're required to interact with and reach out to with the gospel, which, by the way, is also your responsibility, not just mine. To proclaim the good news to people you meet uh, in the various places that you meet them. So the lesson to be learned from this first point is be cautious and ongoingly so about whose example you follow, who you look up to, in other words, and who you turn to for counsel. Be careful. And young people, this especially applies to you because you're at a time and an age when it's easy to look up to people who are older than you, you know, just because they're cooler or because you admire their ability to play sports or whatever, uh, and to fall into thinking that I I want to be like this person. Be careful who you want to be like. Secondly, we not only see in this text uh, King uh, Josiah's apostasy described, we also see it demonstrated. It's pretty ugly, actually. Uh, first, it's demonstrated by him and his officials. This is, you know, the, I've told you, a number of you heard this many times, but my Hebrew professor used to say to me all the time, as, as the king goes, so go the people. And that is a general maxim, biblical maxim, that applies uh, in the uh, Old Testament regularly. Wherever the king's headed, that's usually where the people are headed. Uh, seldom is there much daylight between those two positions. And that was certainly true in this occasion. And his officials and even the people, his subjects throughout the land, um, were, uh, were committing increasingly apostasy, uh, covenant breaking. And so w- the first sign that is evident in this text, at least, is Joash in particular and his officials, um, his staff, or whatever you want to call him, neglected the Jerusalem temple, which Joash himself had fairly recently restored. 
during his better days, his more spirit, covenantally faithful, at least outwardly covenantally faithful days. Uh, he had restored it, and now he doesn't care about it. This temple, of course, was Yahweh's earthly residence during both the Mosaic and Davidic covenant administrations. This is God's house. And his king, who is supposed to be ruling on his behalf and for his glory, doesn't care about God's house. His king's house. Presumably, neglected he, presumably he, they, neglected both its upkeep and the worship that took place in and around that temple. This is the first evidence of apostasy, uh, demonstration of it, I should say. The second demonstration is that he and his officials, we are told, forsook the Lord and began serving uh, pagan idols. Asherim and other idols. Folks, this is the very sin that God had repeatedly and strenuously through the prophets and patriarchs warned them against in the Mosaic Law. Do not be tempted by the idols of the nations around you. Stay away from those idols. Or bad things are going to happen. Here it is. Joash and his officials and the nation forsook the Lord and began to serve idols. Thirdly, another demonstration of of an apostate heart He and his officials refused to listen to the prophets sent to them, particularly to Joash, by God, to call them to repentance. We don't want to hear it. Verse 19. Well, let me back up to verse 18. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem, notice the whole nation, for this their guilt. Yet... Here it is, the patience, the forbearance of God. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they, the prophets, testified against them, they would not listen. Don't want to hear it. Keep that to yourself, prophet. Go away. Shut up. Their unwillingness to hear the prophets of the Lord, repeated prophets who apparently came to them, we are not told their names, but it bespeaks the extreme hardness that had uh, come to be in Joash's and his officials' hearts. It's extreme hardness. And then the fourth demonstration by Joash in particular, of an apostate heart, is that he personally was responsible for having one of those messengers, one of those prophets whom Yahweh had sent to him, namely Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, his old mentor, to call, them, to call him to repentance, he had that prophet murdered. Zechariah was one on whom the Spirit of the Lord had powerfully descended. The Spirit of prophecy had powerfully descended upon him. The Holy Spirit. 
the spirit of the pre-incarnate Christ had descended upon him. He was the instrument on this occasion through whom Yahweh called Joash and his officials and the nation to the carpet for their wickedness. And he was the mouthpiece of God, the human instrument. God's chosen messenger. And yet, in spite of being God's chosen mouthpiece, Joash gave the order to have Zechariah murdered for speaking the unvarnished truth to him that would save his soul if he followed it. And he didn't give a tinker's damn. And he wanted this guy shut up and he ordered that he be shut up and had him stoned. In the eyes of the Lord, it was as if Joash himself, even though he didn't cast the stones, had thrown those stones that killed Zechariah. And he had him, didn't have him temp, murdered out in the out in the boondocks. He didn't even have him murdered in the streets of uh, Jerusalem. He had him murdered in the courtyard of the temple. Ray Dillard, in his commentary on this text, uh, says this, There is great irony in this passage. Zechariah, the son of the priest who had saved the throne for Joash, is murdered in the place where Joash was protected during Athaliah's coup. And he's referring there to the temple precinct. He goes on, Jehoiada, who had preserved the sanctity of the temple from bloodshed, installed the king who would murder his own son there. This is wickedness, folks. This is serious wickedness. So he demonstrates without a shadow of a doubt that he hates the Lord he once professed to serve and love. There are consequences to this. And that's the third point, which is King Joash's apostasy is cursed of God. He is cursed by the Lord with whom he was in covenant. Don't miss that. He was in covenant with the Lord by virtue of his participation as an Israelite, a descendant of Jacob, in the Mosaic administration of the covenant. And he was in covenant with the Lord by virtue of his participation as a royal son of David in the Davidic administration of that same covenant. He was in covenant through multiple administrations of that covenant with the Lord. Note this. All administrations of the gracious covenant, the covenant of grace, the one covenant of grace, all administrations of that one covenant, including the New Testament covenant administration, I might add, or the New Covenant administration, require something from us, and that is ongoing trust in the Lord and striving to obey his will. But, as today's text makes clear, Joash has, by this point in his reign, abandoned 
all of his earlier pretenses, and that's all they were, of being a true servant and worshiper of the Lord. And he is now in open rebellion against him, the Lord, and his covenants. Covenant, covenant rather. And this is evidenced, as we've already talked about, by his abandonment of the temple and its worship, by his worship of false gods, and by his refusal to listen to the prophets and his murder of the last prophet that was sent to him, Zechariah. And just as Zechariah had hoped when he uttered his dying breath, the Lord saw it all. And he was furious. Both with this king, who was supposed to be ruling on his behalf and for his glory, and with his officials, those with whom he has surrounded himself, for their flagrant collective infidelity, spiritual infidelity toward him. And yes, he was furious. What was the result of their defiance and ongoing defiance and blatant uh, repudiation of the lordship of Yahweh in their life? Well, Joash and his evil advisors were about to experience the very divine vengeance that Zechariah had wished for in that dying breath of his. Or to put it another way, the Lord of the covenant was about to unleash the curses of the covenant promised to those who flagrantly and ongoingly violate the terms of that covenant. By the way, this is kind of an aside, but not really. The covenant is conditional. Now, for the true believer, so here's some theology here for you. For the true believer in Jesus, um, Jesus enables you, by his grace, to fulfill your responsibility under the covenant, which is to repent and believe and can continue to doing so. That is all of grace. That's a gift. Faith is a gift. And a new heart is a gift. So it's all of grace. But it is conditioned upon that faith. And so, the fact that there are terms that we need to uh, abide by as Members of, or as parties to the covenant, is evident both in the Old Testament and the New. I'm going to give you two references, and we're going to read them real quickly here, and then I'll get back to the to Joash. But if you look at Genesis chapter 17, this is the this is the um, um, ratification of the Abrahamic administration of the covenant of grace. Remember, there are, there's one covenant of grace, numerous administrations, the the uh, uh, the post fall Adamic one uttered in Genesis 3.15, the Noahic one, the um, Abrahamic one, the Mosaic one, the Davidic one, and then finally the New, the new Covenant one. But they're all, those are all administrations of the one covenant of grace. And then there's the covenant of works, which was in the garden before the fall. Okay, so in Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant, which is most of the Old Testament administrations, is most like the New uh, Covenant administration. Uh, we read in verse 
verses 1 and 2. Look with me here. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. That language, I will establish my covenant between me and you. In other words, I, I will be a, a, a God to you, and you will be my, my, my uh, child, essentially. That's covenantal language. This is covenantal language. But notice the be blameless part. You've got to be blameless. Now, none of us are going to be blameless. We're always going to fall short. Until we get to heaven. Nobody disputes that. But the point is, you need to be serious about being blameless. About striving to put off sin and put on righteousness. It's a part and parcel of what it means to be in covenant with the Lord. And if you're savingly in covenant with the Lord, you will ongoingly do this. Imperfectly the whole way. But you will. That's the Old Testament. Let's go to the New. And see that it hasn't changed. Look at Mark chapter 8. Uh, and this is found in the other uh, three, uh, other two synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew and uh, and Luke as well. I don't think it's in John's gospel, if I'm remembering correctly. But Mark chapter eight, these are the words of Jesus, verse thirty-four and thirty-five, well known to most of you. This passage, and we read there, Mark eight, starting in verse 40, thirty-four, and he summoned the multitude with his disciples, and said to him, this is Jesus, of course, if anyone wishes to come after me, to be a disciple of mine, in other words, or a follower of mine, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's language of obedience. And then he says in verse 35, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels shall save it. That's another way of saying whoever is willing to follow through on what I just said, uh, denying himself, taking up his cross and following me, that's the one who will save his life. Now, God saves the life, of course. But it's, in other words, that obedience, that following, that decision to, to put Christ first in my life and to deny myself with respect in comparison to Christ is, is, how one is saved. It's, 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 it's part of the sanctification process. Remember, we're justified by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by some degree of sanctification, um, which is to say obedience, striving after obedience. So both in the Old Testament and the New, the principle hasn't changed. You're in covenant, it's conditional. Trust, oh yes, and obey. So, what are the consequences for Joash's decision to toss the covenant? Not good. There are four things that happened to him. Uh, the text makes clear. First, God sicks the Arameans on him and his officials and indeed his entire kingdom. Chronicler in verses and found I'm not going to bother to read it right now for the sake of time, but it's in verses 23 and 24 of our text. The chronicler and the Holy Spirit leaves no doubt in our minds as to why this defeat by the Arameans, the, uh, the defeat of uh, Judah at the hands of the Arameans, occurred, and that is because it's it is punishment for spiritual infidelity, especially the kings. 
And notice, verse 24, who is behind the Aramean attack. Verse 24, Indeed, the army of the Arameans came with a small number of men, yet the Lord delivered a very great army, namely Judah, or Joash's, into their hands. And the, and the reason? Because they'd forsaken the Lord. God did this, you see. God sick the Arameans on, on uh, Joash and his army. A second consequence of the, uh, in addition to war against him, a uh, second consequence for Joash and his, and his nation's, uh, uh, apostasy was that even though, and I just read the text, even though the number of Aramean attackers of the king of Damascus is comparatively small, the number of attackers is small, yet they soundly whoop Joash's much larger fighting force. And there was a message to Joash in that. The message in the fact that his vast army is soundly defeated by this diminutive opponent is the Arameans have won because I, the Lord, am with them and not with you. I have forsaken you because you forsook me. God is driving home the point for Joash in particular You're being punished because you turned your back on me. A third consequence for Joash's apostasy is he is gravely wounded in this battle against the armies of the king of Aram, of uh, Aram, which is Damascus, same thing. And his wounds leave him... um, Forcibly bedridden. He can't get out of bed. He's lying in bed, stricken with pain and agony or whatever. We don't know what happened to him, but it was obviously, uh, he had no choice but to be in bed. And while he is lying sick and helpless on his bed, some of his own staff, his servants, decide to kill him. And he can't defend himself and he dies at the hands of his own servants. This is another consequence of his apostasy. Now the text says, verse 25, look at it. It says, um, And when they had departed from him, for they left him very sick, his own servants conspired against him, notice this, because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada, the priest, that is the blood of Zechariah, whom Joash had taken his life, right? They say the conspiracy against him by his servants was because of the blood of Zechariah. It is unlikely, and I would almost say I would almost say it's guaranteed, but I won't go that far. It's unlikely that the servants of Joash who killed him had been angered by Joash's murder of jo- of Zechariah and were now exacting their revenge on Joash for having taken somebody they apparently admired. That's probably not what was going on. It probably wasn't the uh, the uh, it wasn't probably because they were angry at Joash because he killed this uh, this Zechariah fellow. No, it's much more likely, probable, that 
This is found in our text there in verse 25, because of the blood of Jehoiada, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. That statement is found there. It's the Holy Spirit's way of informing the reader, us, yet again, that God is the one exacting revenge here and that he is merely doing so through the hands of Joash's servants. God is exacting revenge. And then the final consequence, if we can put it this way, it is, is that God pours further contempt and ignominy on Joash for his spiritual betrayal of him by providentially preventing Joash's remains from being buried in the place where Judah's other kings were interred following their deaths. He didn't get buried with the other kings who had come before him in the traditional burial place. Indeed, Joash's exclusion from the royal burial grounds contrasts in this text sharply with what they did with Jehoiada's body, which was buried him, who was a priest, not a king, with the kings. Joash gets to be with the kings of, of, of old, uh, the former kings, uh, and uh, Je- Jehoiada does, and Joash doesn't. And the Lord orchestrated that, you see, to, to, to heap dishonor on this man from on high through what, would take, what was taking place on earth and what was done to dispose of his body. Now, every member of this church, or of some church that's Christian, at least outwardly Christian, whether you're a member of this church or not, every member of a true church of Christ, and I don't mean that churches of Christ, but you know what I mean, Uh, Every member of this church and other Christian churches is a party to the covenant of grace. Everyone is. You're a party. You're either party to that uh, covenant in in a merely legalistic way, or legal way, I should say, not legalistic, a merely legal outward way and nothing more, or you are a party to that covenant inwardly. You have a new heart, and you're united to Christ savingly. You're either in covenant one of those two ways. Those are two ways that one can be in covenant with the Lord. And as a party to this covenant of grace, I'm going to get back to that in just a second, you have a recurring choice to make. You can choose to continue trusting in and striving to obey Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord all the days of your life. In other words, you can choose to continue striving in pers- to persevere in, in, the, in that effort to continue trusting God and Jesus and striving to obey him. And as a result of that perseverance, those con- ongoing choices to continue trusting the Lord and serving him, as a result of that, remain a recipient of God's covenantal blessings. So that's one choice as a party to the covenant. Or you have a second choice, and it's a bad one, but it's a choice. And that is you can very foolishly choose to stop trusting in 
and obeying the Lord Jesus, with the result that you will become an object of God's covenant curses. People make that choice all the time who go to church. It's profoundly foolish. Indescribably so. But it's a choice. Sin makes us stupid. And it's a choice that people make who go to church. Don't ever make that choice. You young people don't ever make that choice. You old people don't ever make that choice. But it is a choice. You can hang on to the Lord or you can let go of him, spiritually speaking, in which case you were never really his to begin with. But even if that's you, even if you never were and you realize, wait a minute, I've been going to church, but I'm, I guess I'm not a Christian because I, I don't love Jesus at all. I've said I do, but I don't. You still have the option of coming to Christ as long as you have breath. You can come to Christ this time, as it were, truly. With humility, crying out to God for mercy through Christ and his finished work and trusting in that person and uh, that Jesus and his finished work to make you truly right with God, to make you in covenant inwardly, not just merely outwardly. And I want to remind you, and as I close, this text has, has dealt a lot with the, the you know, God forsaking somebody who was in covenant with him. Uh, and so it points to, you know, uh, that God gets angry at sin and defiance. And he does. But the covenant, even though that's one edge of the covenant, the other edge is where the emphasis lies in Scripture, and that's on grace. God is gracious. He could have left us all to just go to hell and never made the second covenant and left us all under the first Adam and magnify his justice by doing so. He could have done that. He didn't have to be gracious. But he wanted, he wants to be gracious. To bless and forgive and love those who were his enemies. Spiritually speaking. You and me. Before we were converted. Or if you're here now and you're not converted, you. Don't be, don't cling to your foolish pride. Don't keep resisting the Lord if you are. Take the free gift of eternal life. Yes, you're gonna, it's going to change your life radically if you do. You've got a new master in charge at that point. But I promise, the scriptures promise you, God won't allow you to regret your decision to come to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text.